All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Grand Rounds. It's 8.04 Apple time. Uh, so that's what Dr. Salazar told me was when I needed to kick off Grand Rounds. <laughs> I am happy to um, kick, is that on? Can you guys hear me? I usually talk pretty loud. That's better. Can you guys hear it better now? Thanks. Um, I'm happy to kick off. Um, this is the first of the surgical grand rounds for this year. Um, we're going to start off with urology and Dr. Medina. I do want to encourage any of the surgeons in the audience, for those that have the greatest attendance at the end of this year, we'll get a fun prize that's to be determined, but it's to encourage um, us coming to, to conference because I do think we learn a lot uh, coming to grand rounds. I also have a couple of announcements to make. The first one is Nancy's run is on Saturday, September 28th. Um, so for all of those that can participate, it would be a great event. The second is that the memorial service for Dr. Bartlett will occur this Friday um, in the chapel at 5.30 at Hartford Hospital. So for all those that are interested, uh, please um, join us um, to pay respects to Dr. Bartlett. Finally, it gives me great pleasure to introduce our division director of urology, Dr. Medina. He has been here since 2017, though I know from my standpoint, it feels like a lot longer. We've been through quite a lot <laughs> in building the division. Um, he got his um, BA from Columbia University, his MD from Cornell. He spent some time in the Navy, um, and then he went on to do um, his residency at Cornell, and we actually um, did did steal him from um, YL Cornell Medical College uh, to bring him here to Connecticut. Anyone that knows Dr. Medina knows he is a, an extraordinary individual. He is very kind. He has actually been a lot of fun to work with and he enjoys hunting very much, which seems to be a theme across the surgical divisions right lately. <laughs> anyway, without much to do, I'd like to introduce Dr. Medina. First, I'd like to uh, thank Dr. Uh, Fink and Dr. Uh, Salazar for indulging me and allowing me to bring Andy Combs up here, who is uh, not only uh, one of my good friends, he's a, uh, he's a mentor uh, to me. Um, the other thing I'd like to correct is, yes, I do technically have to admit that I was in the Navy, but I was a Marine first and will always be a Marine. <laughs> Um, so how to introduce Andy Combs. Andy Combs is a uh, special kind of person. You will see that he is an assistant professor at Weill Cornell uh, uh, Medical College. He was an assistant professor at Columbia University. And if you think about PAs being assistant professors, it's not very easy. He is an esteemed colleague. Um, he uh, is, uh, again, a, a mentor to me in, in your dynamics. Anyone who has heard me ever even mention the word uh, urodynamics will uh, hear me say Andy Combs like five times before the sentence ends. Um, he's been a, a profound influence on how I think about how the bladder works. And uh, without further ado, I'd like to introduce Andy Combs. Well, thank you very much. And thank you very much for inviting me to come and speak today. Um, it was a nice introduction. I hope I can live up to that. That makes it very hard. Anyway, I also hope you indulge me when we do the, uh, the presentation. 
I was thinking how to, to formulate because there's such an admixture of, of practitioners here. And as I was doing it, I was saying, gee, I, I hope I, I hope I have enough. I need to have more. And then I was reviewing them last night. And I said, I put too much in there. And it's like, it's going to be so bad. <laughs> so, so I hope it's somewhere in the middle. Okay, so let me see if I... what I have to, how I get it to go. So I just click. Oh. Oh. And then I go like that. Okay. Okay. Yeah, you just, you just scroll. Oh, okay. Very good. Oh, that's it. So, um, what we wanted to talk about today was uh, urinary incontinence in children, and more specifically, since since this does cover the the spectrum of pediatric practitioners, to be not so much talk about all of the etiologies of in, of urinary incontinence and and a, a long discussion about the various types of treatments and outcomes and so forth, is to talk a little bit about that, but to focus more on when to identify which children who are being managed for urinary incontinence may be better served uh, or, or, or should be uh, referred to pediatric urology because the nature of their wedding may not be as benign as, as we generally think. Okay. Certainly urinary tract infections, low, uh, lower urinary tract, not infected, but <laughs> urinary tract symptoms and a particular wedding and most common reasons for referral. Uh, most of these do not require specialist, uh, specialist referral and can be adequately treated by non-pediatric non non urologist clinicians. Um, but there are some patients who appear to be fairly straightforward cases that actually have or be at risk of developing underlying uh, voiding disorders that put their kidneys and bladders at risk. And that's with the main focus of the um, presentation today is. Okay. Uh, you know, just a just general sense of, of control. Uh, generally follows that bowel movements are, are, are precede urinary control at daytime bladder control, uh, precedes nighttime control. Uh, that the current AAP, AAP uh, guidelines, <clears throat> and, and for the last 25 years, 30 years or so, actually recommends uh, going from early toilet training to deferred um, until the child expresses an interest and toileting and or a bit older until they're more neurologically mature. And that's been some sort of point of con uh, controversy where um, the, the uh, impetus for pushing it off seemed to be that those who would try to, try to toilet train prior to them being neurologically or, or uh, uh, ready from an interest point of view uh, were at greater risk of developing um, uh, you know, various types of lower urinary tract dysfunction. And it's interesting, I just re reviewed a paper that uh, was, re was reporting uh, that in their study, it, the reverse seemed to be true. So there is certainly some, some controversy as to when the best time to start is and, and what the role in, in early to earlier toilet training may play in the development of some of the types of voiding dysfunction that we see. 
Uh, most children are toilet trained during the day by the age of three or four, and certainly by the nighttime by uh, age five to six. Um, I have that thing, uh, I think it still, still holds, you know, although it was, <laughs> it was part of my training many years ago. And that was the rule of 15s, and that is about 15% of five-year-olds are, are wet uh, at the age of five, uh, five percent at, at uh, ten, and one percent at fifteen, uh, and about fifteen percent per year get better from that from that point forward. Um, <clears throat> you know, we don't really consider it to be an issue until uh, until after that time. So we try, unless there are some other extenuating circumstances, we try not to focus on on treatment. Uh, nocturnal enuresis oftentimes has a familial association. About 25% of, of any given child is at risk of having enuresis, meaning that they're continuing to wet after the age that we would normally expect them to have control. Uh, but that pops up to about 50% of one parent has it and, and about 75% of if, uh, both parents were, were bedwetters. Uh, bedwetting, at least from a urologic pr perspective, doesn't really warrant treatment until they're a bit older unless it is causing a certain psychosocial problems, and they can, they can be significant in, in some circumstances. Uh, but, you know, it's important to remember that, that sometimes we, we shouldn't let people push us into to treating uh, unnecessarily, and, and so that some patient, parents will show up and they'll say, well, you know, my kid's three or four years old and they're still wetting the bed, and his brother was, was dry at two, or, or the reverse, usually it's the reverse, the girl was before, or the boys take a little bit longer. But, in, in any event, they're pushing the treatment, and that, that really, you know, should not be encouraged. Likewise, you know, you, you see patients who are there for some different reason, and they still report bedwetting, and they're 12 years old. And, and that can be a significant problem for that patient, even if that's not why they were there. And so simply saying, well, you know, lots of kids wet. By the time they're 12, it, it does have an emotional impact on them. So it's at least worth not encouraging that this is, you know, perfectly normal, but rather trying to vet out, at least in the older uh, child's case, making sure that they don't have some, some other underlying thing, not to impress upon them that they themselves are abnormal, but from a clinical point of view, trying to vet out a little bit more whether there is something associated with it that, that one needs to be uh, concerned about. And then you can have the conversation with the, with the parent. Uh, when, when we consider you know, that children who only have uh, uh, bedwetting, it's considered primary nocturnal enuresis or monosymptomatic uh, enuresis. Um, uh, if they've been dry, at least for about six months to a year, completely dry. Um, if they start having wetting again after that period of time, after having been wet for, for at least six to 12 months, then we consider that to be secondary enuresis, and there's usually some underlying cause for that. Uh, sometimes it's the development of some lower urinary tract dysfunction. Sometimes it's emotional. Uh, it could be a stressor that's been introduced into their life, but it certainly is a little bit. Usually, you don't regress. I mean, I'm not talking about like one accident that you know they went away to camp and they they had one accident while they were there, but they have you know reemergence of of regular. Uh, wedding at night. And uh, non-monosymptomatic non -mono uh, nocturnal enuresis bears closer examination because it's oftentimes associated with other types of low urinary tract symptoms. Okay. 
Uh, most common type of urinary incontinence is related to bladder overactivity. We sort of categorize it in three ways. Uh, idiopathic, which is, means that we don't know. So <laughs> it's, it's very, very common description for lots of conditions. Uh, neurogenic detrusor overactivity, which means that it's, it's driven by some underlying neuropathology. Um, and it often, uh, that has the potential to affect the bladder function and control. And then secondary detrusor overactivity, meaning it's a consequence or sequela of some other condition. So people who typically have obstruction uh, or dysfunctional voiding will have associated bladder overactivity or bladder over distension, meaning that uh, patients who, who are children who will hold their urine for very extended periods of time have large uh, bladder capacity. When they push the bladder to the limit, they will provoke overactivity. And then one can well imagine that the treatment for that is not to give them medication so they can hold more, but buy them a watch and get them to go on a more timely basis. Uh, other more well, they're less common, but other types of urinary incontinence is vaginal voiding. This is seen in girls, obviously, and it has to do with urine shunting. Uh, it typically uh, occurs because of positioning on the toilet or if, you know, if their legs are together when they urinate or if they have, um, you know, depending upon where the, where the uh, urethral meatus is, is located, uh, they can, uh, when the, during the act of voiding, will also sequester some urine in the vagina, then it'll stand up and then later on it will come out. And then it gets reported as you know, insensible uh, urine loss or post-void wetting. But usually they're not reported as post-void wetting, they just report being wet and then you kind of have to tease that out in the history taking process. And then there's post-void dribbling, which you can see uh, more typically in males. And that has to do with urine trapping in the urethra. So if you have an obstructive process distal to the uh, to the external sphincter, then when you're finished urinating, it will then continue to dribble down. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then there are those patients who have issues with uh, bladder neck closure. Uh, and so they, they, if there's a delay in closure of the bladder neck, they will continue to leak a little bit afterwards. Not an uncommon complaint in patients who have primary bladder neck dysfunction. Uncommon types of urinary incontinence is overflow incontinence, usually related to retention, either abject retention uh, or patients who actually have some form of, of impaired compliance where pressure rises as the bladder fills and then bladder storage pressures overcome outlet resistance. Uh, stress urinary incontinence, again, pretty uncommon in, in, uh, in the pediatric population. And giggle incontinence, which a lot of times gets reported, although they'll, they'll, parents will come in and report them as, as losing urine when they laugh or... or, or are very active, and so they, it gets tagged as giggle incontinence. There is a condition that's actually an isolated one. It's, it's the sole, it's supposed to be, that's the only symptom that they have. They have no other issues during the day or at night. <clears throat> and, uh, okay, and then there's continuous leakage. And certainly we, we, when patients who come, you know, parents who come in and they'll talk about the, the child has never been wet before, uh, and never been dry, and they're constantly wet. Uh, or not, it doesn't necessarily, constantly wet doesn't mean that if you sit there and had them spread their legs, you would just see everything dripping down constantly. Sometimes that does happen, but it may be intermittent, but it's, it's a perpetual, it's, it's around the clock that this happens. Uh, and that's usually due to either a fistulous communication 
uh, which could be congenital, iatrogenic, or inflammatory, or there's ectopic ureter. No, no. I have two active fingers that we go. <laughs> so then there's anatomic urethral obstruction, um, posterior urethral valves or anterior valves. Uh, and either most most patients with uh, most patients with just um, shut this off. There we go. Forgot. Most patients with posterior urethral valves are picked up prenatally now, uh, fortunately. But sometimes they come kids fly under the radar, uh, and uh, they they get picked up later, either. You know, early early infancy with failure to thrive, or, or urinary tract infections, or later on, you know, failure to, to gain urinary control, and and may develop a urinary tract infection, and then they'll pick up that there's hydronephrosis and retention of urine, and an indication that there's some process obstructive process going on. Uh, you can have urethral strictures, which can be congenital. Uh, sometimes you'll have a urethral diverticulum, or what they call a lacuna magna. It's a diverticulum in the most distal portion of the urethra. Okay. And then there are acquired obstruction, urethral strictures from, related to uh, trauma, uh, urethral strictures that occur as a result of iatrogenic uh, injury, surgical complication, or urethral instrumentation or catheterization, which is one of the reasons that you need to exercise care when, when doing uh, urethral catheterization, particularly in, in children. And then meatal stenosis, which usually occurs as a result of either chronic inflammation uh, or oftentimes we see it following uh, urethral reconstruction and, and meatal advancement in patients with, excuse me, hypospadias. Okay. These are slides uh, that uh, graciously uh, got to uh, uh, include from Dr. Paul Austin over at uh, Texas Children's, who we did a course together. And, um, you know, it was just very nicely to sort of demonstrate uh, the types of, of uh, urethral, uh, urethral duplication that we see and what the consequences are. And so generally speaking, males and females can have urethral de uh, duplication and can have uh, ectopic insertion. It's just that in boys, they generally tend to be dry because it occurs proximal to the urethral sphincter. Whereas in girls, it more typically, it's either at the bladder neck or in the urethra distal to the external sphincter. And it can also be in the vagina or the, just outside. Okay. Okay. Uh, so this was childhood, it was picked up on ultrasound and you can see the uh, dilation in the upper pole of the kidney. On physical exam, I don't know how well you can see that, but Right over there is a little dimple, and that's the opening. And it's interesting when you're examining, then sometimes you'll see an actual stream come out. Uh, it was interesting to see. Uh, many times, though, you will not see it. You will suspect it because they will have dripping of, or, or leakage of urine, not post-void, but fairly continuously from the vagina and where it's inserted there. And then obviously you would need to, to examine them under under anesthesia in order to, to better visualize that. Um, here they did two things. They catheterized that and they catheterized the uh, ectopically, the, the uh, secondary ureter uh, in the bladder. And usually it's the upper, 
it, not usually, it is the upper upper ureter that inserts ectopically uh, below the, the uh, lower pole ureter. And here you can see this is the lower pole and this is the upper pole. So getting to urinary incontinence, so I always like this slide. Um, and it's like, you know, you know, the parents go multiple times and explain that they're incontinence, but there's a blame. They don't pay attention. They don't listen. They're lazy. They're, they're heavy sleepers. Uh, there's always lots of different explanations of how they reconcile it. But uh, in the end, it's it's the better question that we need to ask is why why are they what's to blame? Why are they why are they having that? <clears throat> and so it comes to the essential. Uh, evaluation of the child with incontinence. Uh, it involves a detailed history of present illness. Uh, you know, how did it, you know, how, how they had, there's lots of different elements and, you know, it's hard to go into, not enough time to go into all of those things, but basically you want to find out, you know, what is it that they have? Is it just nighttime? Do they have associated daytime symptoms? Uh, sometimes you have to ask the question several different ways. Uh, parents will oftentimes say their only problem is at night, you know, they're fine during the day. And then you find out, well, they're not really so fine during the day. It's just that in their minds, their more important problem is that they wet the bed at night. Or sometimes parents will not acknowledge the problem of a present, uh, of a, a particular problem of wetting at night, uh, wetting during the day. And then you find out it's because, well, you know, they don't pay attention. You know, if they have some explanation as to why they were wetting during the day, then they will, um, you know, sort of brush that off as well. This is their fault because they're not doing what they're supposed to. So it's not really a problem, but they're there for, for nighttime wetting. Uh, review of systems, uh, you know, all part of the normal evaluation process. But, you know, we focus on also any types of uh, you know, any issues that might suggest that they have some sort of uh, growth or uh, developmental issues or or any type of neurologic sign. Um, what their developmental history was, were they born, were they premature? Do they have any associated uh, 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 medical, medical problems? Do they have any developmental or psychological issues? And were there's any special onset of the triggers? Like if you're talking about daytime incontinence, were they were they always not fully toilet trained? Because it's, it's amazing. Come, yes, they're toilet trained at two, or they toilet trained at three, and yet they're still wetting during the day. And so, to me, it doesn't mean that they were really toilet trained. They they may they may try using the toilet, but it's not it's not it's not complete. Um, and so, you also want to tease out exactly what what those what those issues are. Uh, and then, of course, the physical exam is extremely important. Uh, with particular attention to muscle tone, gait, when you have like a trigger figure, um, where, uh, you know, you want to do a, a general, uh, you know, regional, you know, just a regional uh, neurologic exam for sensation, uh, anal sphincter tone, uh, uh, anal wink. Uh, you want to look at their back. Is there evidence of scoliosis? Lower back, is there any, any suggestion of abnormality? Do they have a dimple? Do they have some sort of overlying, uh, you know, do they have a more prominent fat pad? Do they, do they have some uh, defects, skin defect with some form of stigmata? I mean, usually by the time they see you in the PDA, they're not going to walk in with a bulging, you know, meningocele or a big hairy tuft or, or uh, you know, a wide, deep uh, 
crevice, but sometimes they, they will come in and they will have what looks like a, a fairly deep little dimple uh, at the very base of the spine or even in the crack of the buttocks. And if you don't look there, you may miss it. Then of course, there's lots of patients who have little dimples in the back and they don't mean anything. But if they show up with urinary issues and they have that, it sort of bears a little bit, a, a little bit closer, closer uh, looking into. Uh, the elements of the evaluation of the child is uh, you obtain a voiding and wetting diary. Uh, that's a very helpful tool to, A, engage the patient and engage the parent in their care. Uh, I mean, a lot of times, those of you who treat uh, patients with, uh, with uh, wetting uh, issues, uh, it's, it's almost as if they're sort of disconnected. It's like they're there, they want you to fix it, like they have a headache and it's your job to give them the right stuff to make the headache go away. When in fact, many of the, the treatments that are designed to address urinary incontinence and, and nighttime wetting uh, in, re require involvement and engagement of both the patient and the parent. So the voiding and wetting diary will help to define better uh, what the actual frequency of voiding is, what their range of voided volumes are, that tell you if they're overproducing urine, and what volumes are associated with wetting, so that it may be that either the timing or the volume is what's triggering this. All of them should have a urine analysis, at least a screen in the beginning, just to make sure that they, that they don't have an infection, but also it gives you an idea of, of what their specific gravity is, how, how you know, if, they're, if you're seeing them at three o'clock in the afternoon, and they, and they have a very concentrated urine. They're restricting fluids. And sometimes, or oftentimes, there's an underlying reason for it, especially patients who have, they come in for reporting nighttime, you know, they're there for nocturnal anuresis, and then you find out, well, the reason they're dry during the day is they don't drink very much. And then they come home, they come back from school, and then they'll start to fluid load, and then they'll have issues overnight. Um, if they have a long, if they come in and they've had a long history of urinary tract, uh, if they have a history of urinary tract infections or a long history of lots, it's like, like you're the third doctor we've seen or, uh, you know, they've been having this issue for seven years, but it's just become too much. They probably should have a, a renal bladder ultrasound uh, just to, to evaluate, to make sure their upper tracts look okay, that there's no evidence of dilation. How does the bladder wall look? Does it look thickened? Does it look like it's been working overtime to try and get the pee out? Ideally, these, these studies should be done pre and post void, so you get a chance to see what the upper tracts look like, uh, as that is a, uh, an indication that, uh, um, that there may be elevated storage pressures. Uh, and that if the ultrasound is abnormal, okay. If the ultrasound is abnormal, uh, then, you know, I would consider also referring for um, we'll get into that a little bit later, but you know, there, I just wanted to put down a VUDS, that's video urodynamics as opposed to a VCUG. Uh, anytime there's a suggestion that they may have reflux or some abnormality avoiding, uh, even though VCUGs are very good at, at, at giving uh, form, uh, they do not tell you function. You get the biggest bang for your buck with uh, video urodynamics because it's the marriage of form and function. Um, that's it. And this is what the standard voiding diary looks like. Uh, when we tell parents to fill it out, we just try not to make them too crazy. We just have them put down the day, the time, and how much pee they made. You don't really need to ask them, you know, to record what they drank. You know, kids, 
very difficult to follow around and find out what they had. And at the end of the day, what you peed, that's what you drank. So, you know, give or take an ounce or two. So that's, it's not necessary to do that. But you do want them to put down, is there any association with urgency or wedding? Okay. The other thing we look at is how are they pooping? There certainly is a, a, is a frequent connection between uh, bowel dysfunction and bladder dysfunction. And um, um, there's oftentimes an association for a variety of reasons. But at the end of the day, you want to find out, are they having issues with continence, uh, with uh, constipation? And, uh, you know, so what's the frequency of the bowel movements, what the BMs look like? And then, uh, then you would then want to incorporate treatment of that uh, into their regular program. <laughs> Okay. Um, another basic tool of assessment is, is the renal bladder ultrasound. Ideal, as I said, ideally it should be performed pre and post void. It gives valuable clues about the bladder function. Uh, it can identify um, lower and upper tract dilation in relationship to volume, which, uh, you know, is, can reflect uh, changes in pressure. So if there's progressive dilation, it's usually related to storage pressures, although sometimes it can be due to reflux, uh, as opposed to uh, patients who are voiding and then they develop upper tract dilation, which would be more suggestive of reflux. Uh, you can take a look and see how well do they empty, whether the bladder wall is thickened, which usually comes from, from pushing against resistance, and rectal distension, which gives you an idea as to, you know, if the rectum is distended, it's pushing up on the bladder, it certainly would explain why they may have frequency urgency and can be a factor in, in uh, urine, a, a urinary incontinence. Uh, but you don't want to overread that uh, so much either because you ask them, did they go today? Mm -hmm. If they went this morning and that's how it looks, then that probably is a significant issue. But we have lots of patients who we scan everyone before we do Euroflow uh, studies or urodynamics. And if there is, we send them to the toilet and go. And if it cleans out, then you would need to use other criteria to determine if they really do have constipation, uh, as opposed to simply saying, well, there's a lot of stool in the rectum, therefore you must be constipated. Okay, uh, case in point is this. Uh, I usually use this, the, these slides to show that not every patient that we do will get the, video, get the uh, fluoroscopic portion of the study, you know, especially if they're there a repeat customer where you're just checking to see how their pressures were based on medication. So we will do real-time ultrasound while we're doing the urodynamics. And so this is a patient who had um, severe loss of compliance and they had a, 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 a detrusive pressure, this is the bladder pressure uh, that comes from the muscle of the bladder itself of around 36 at, at capacity. And I just want to show you, this is what it looked like when the bladder was full. And that's how it looks like after you decompress the bladder. And so one has to be very careful you know, when you, when you look at, you know, unless they've done with the bladder full and the bladder empty, that sometimes it gets reported as no upper tract dilation. And then we do the study and there's rather significant dilation. It just is a matter of when you, when you get the study done. And to us, you know, we did the drainage and we know this only accounted for about five milliliters. But if it's not measured, whether you would get a report, you know, it depends on the, on the radiology service that how they do things, but it's not uncommon to see this married to this. And uh, they tell you, uh, you know, partially distended. So, okay. 
Uh, urotherapy is the mainstay of, of treatment for uh, conservative-based uh, therapy. It's useful for most types of LUT conditions. We sort of uh, use that terminology, LUT dysfunction, as, a, as the broad term for, for, for this. And then LUT conditions are the individual things that we see, like dysfunctional voiding and uresis, uh, daytime overactivity, and so forth. Uh, it involves demystification and education of the normal bladder function and how the child is deviating. Uh, behavioral modifications to help resolve some of their issues like timely voiding, uh, avoiding uh, holding uh, uh, maneuvers, uh, bowel habits and, and improve, you know, good bowel habits and, and correction of any associated constipation. Lifestyle changes, meaning their diet, uh, fluid moderation so that they drink an adequate amount during the day, but restrict at night before bedtime, if, particularly if that's one of their issues. Uh, treatment should be individualized uh, for each child. Uh, that uh, multimodal therapy, meaning that not only standard therapy, but other types of things, besides, you know, bowel, such as bowel function. Um, 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 I'm sorry, uh, uh, time, you know, time voiding, but and and bowel uh, management, but also may they may require uh, medication as well. Uh, but it's important to know that, I mean, bowel, bowel, we've come to appreciate bowel and bladder dysfunction. It used to be called dysfunctional elimination syndrome. Now it's bowel and bladder dysfunction. But at the end of the day, uh, they oftentimes coexist. Sometimes the process for one is the same as the process for others. Sometimes one is the cause of the problem of the other. So a grossly distended uh, uh, bowel will oftentimes impinge on bladder function. And conversely, patients who have detrusive overactivity, if they, re if they restrict fluids or are on anticholinergic medication, will develop a worsening of their, their constipation. But there's, there's been a disturbing trend that I see that many patients who come in and they complain of both, poop suddenly seems to become the king and everything is directed towards controlling their bowel. Uh, and, and I've found that that oftentimes is just not as successful as gets reported, but it seems to be so convenient because you just give them a paper handout. And if they come back and I haven't been following it, then they get just, you know, it's persistent because you're non-compliant. Then you talk to the family and say, well, they weren't compliant because that wasn't their issue. And it's like they, they need management of both. Um, and you need to develop a, a plan uh, to not only treat the patient on an individualized basis, but also have some mechanism to determine, are they really getting better? Uh, you know, I like this slide. It sort of demonstrates how a lot of things work sometimes, and particularly in urology, where, you know, in, in general medicine, you know, if you have high blood pressure, you have to document, you had it and document it got better. But in urology, a lot of times it's simply, do you think you feel better? And um, that's not proof of efficacy. Just want to talk a little bit about urodynamics. It's uh, just so you understand what it is and why we do it. Okay. It's a methodology for assessing the two aspects of, uh, of uh, uh, bladder function, storage and emptying. Uh, and uh, the ideal is that uh, uh, the bladder should have good capacity stable bladder during filling, low storage pressure, meaning that it's, it's, it accommodates well. I keep doing that. I don't know. Okay. Um, with a coordinated sphincter, 
uh, minimal detrusive work to get the maximal effect and emptying, and and urine should be unidirectional, <laughs> so should go be coming out. Uh, normal voiding, just to understand, is a, it's a staged event. The first stage is relaxation of the pelvic floor, followed by detrusive contraction, simultaneous de decreased tone at the neck of the bladder or internal sphincter, uh, which then opens with the contraction and outcomes, the uh, funneling of the bladder neck, and then you have unimpeded flow. If you're looking at a flow EMG study, this is what it looks like. This is pelvic floor EMG. You see muscle recruitment with increasing sensation. Then you will relax your pelvic floor muscles when it's appropriate to go. And then flow begins. And that's a nice normal pattern. Um, and if you did your, if you were doing urodynamics, this is essentially what your, this is what it, it looks like. You have your cough reflex over here. Uh, you have uh, your EMG. And then this is the abdominal pressure so that with relaxation, you get a slight drop in pressure, you know, just like how we breathe. You drop the diaphragm, you drop your pelvic floor musculature, you get slight increase in volume. And by increasing volume, you get a slight drop in pressure, followed then by uh, contraction of the bladder and a few seconds later, beginning of flow. And this is the same patient, same study, only we included the video portion, and you see that this is a female patient, and she's urinating just fine, okay? Now, what happens in detrusor overactivity is that the bladder will start to contract before you're ready to relax your pelvic floor muscles. And so this not only serves as, an, as a good representation to understand what bladder overactivity is, but also helps to demonstrate why it can be potentially harmful in the long term. And that is because the whole time that you are contracting your bladder, you, you are preventing the urine from coming out by tensing your external sphincter and sort of pinching the hose. And when you do that, when you do that, it's like taking your bladder to the gym or doing isometric exercise. You're pushing against resistance, and over time, it starts to bulk up, which is not uh, good. But then, uh, why the, oftentimes the bladder will appear thickened on ultrasound, and you see the same thing uh, as as when you're doing your dynamics or do any type of imaging study. You may see trabeculations of the bladder, and that will uh, affect uh, compliance and irritability and decrease the capacity over time. And you can see that once you relax, that it comes out. So that's sort of that explosive uh, pattern. People say as soon as they get to the bathroom, they, they start to leak. Okay. All right. On the other hand, you can have severe overactivity, uh, but eventually by, by tensing your pelvic floor muscles, you can stop the contraction from occurring. And then a short time later, then they can go on to urinate in a normal fashion. And the reason that I wanted to show that is to show you that not all overactivity always results, always results in, in wetting. Uh, and also explains why sometimes parents will tell you, well, my child, you know, they, they have to go, they're, they're crossing their legs, they don't get wet. And then all of a sudden they'll relax and then they say they're fine and the parents will say, go to the bathroom and say, I don't have to go. And now they have oppositional behavior. 
and they're four years old and they're, they're seeing a psychiatrist or something. And, and what I try to tell parents is, is that, you know, I can't really tell if your child needs a psychiatrist or not, but I can tell you that children live in the moment. You know, they don't eat when they're not hungry. They don't want to go to bed if they're not tired and they don't want to go to the bathroom if they don't feel like it. And if they've been able to successfully abort a contraction, and I don't think they really even know that that's what it was that they did, uh, the urge went away. And so technically they did not have to go. They don't sit there and think, well, maybe I should preemptively go to the bathroom now and make sure it doesn't come better. That's not really how they think. And, and you have to have an appreciation. And so instead of having this discussion with your child about how, how you know, they, 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 they need to go, just, you know, you just change it to, this is your bladder telling you it's time. You know, and there's, there are other things that we do. We have to walk with a cup of water to see if they spill. There's lots of different techniques you can use to bring the message home without having the conversation when you need to do this because I told you to do this. And that doesn't really work very well with, with, with kids. Okay. It's just an image of stress incontinence where many times they cough. There's a, guard, there's a guarding reflex. It, it clamps down and you don't leak. But if you strain to void or do a valsalva, you, you will leak urine. And that's usually due to urethral insufficiency, either from uh, prior trauma uh, or older patients. If you have a, a distortion of anatomy, you have multiple births and so forth. Sometimes it occurs if they're on medication. So if they're on a muscle relaxant, uh, a skeletal muscle relaxant, that can, that can also uh, result in, in uh, leakage. Secondary bladder neck obstruction uh, is, uh, is something that occurs where you have obstruction as a result of, of uh, uh, bladder wall thickening and, and it, uh, the obstruction is at the level of the bladder neck because of this hypertrophy that develops in response to obstruction. And it's important for early recognition uh, of this. Uh, because it, it's, it's, it, uh, it does cause all of the consequences that we see with obstruction, and which is progressive deterioration of bladder and then ultimately affects their upper tracts. It also responds well to alpha blocker therapy most of the time. Okay. And I just wanted to, to say that in dysfunctional voiding, that's where you have contraction of the bladder during, during, uh, during actual voiding. And so the mechanism the same, whether it's in response to overactivity or not, that that does that. So um, the uh, value of early assessment uh, and, and, and uh, re for those patients who are at risk of developing significant bladder dysfunction. Uh, okay. Uh, has been increasingly recognized over the past several decades that, that uh, early intervention in patients with neurologic conditions, with posterior urethral valves, we've come to appreciate that, you know, progressive deterioration is not the natural history of the disease. It's the natural history of people who are inadequately identified and treated. And that with progressive uh, proactive management of bladder dysfunction, that you can decrease the need for surgery, improve their quality of life, and protect their kidneys. Uh, and for those who, who that time has passed, it, we can at least uh, improve the, the function of their bladder in anticipation of them going for renal transplant. Okay. 
Uh, case in point, this is a boy who had posterior youthful valve that was resected, but hadn't seen urology since then. He was being followed by nephrology for chronic kidney disease and persistent hydronephrosis. He was seen on a regular basis. But, uh, you know, because he was younger, he was wedding, there was a history that, that patients with valves are late, you know, develop control a little bit later. Uh, but when he was about six or so, it was more becoming more and more problematic. But it was, even though it was thought to be, a his, you know, be related to his condition or behavioral, they sent him to us for evaluation. And sure enough, what he had was... Okay. Uh, severe loss of compliance. What that means is as you fill, the bladder pressure goes up. It's not the same as these things, which are contractions of overactivity. Uh, it is this progressive rise specifically related to volume. And when you look at it and uh, you do the video portion of it, he has a high pressure contraction, no opening of the bladder neck. He's blowing off into his kidney on the left side. He had grade five reflux and he has a very irregular bladder. I had no, no, there was no pre-study for us to look at, but you can, so I can't say that some of these, some of these uh, um, morphologic changes were not there prior, but uh, they certainly are there now. And we were able to get him improved uh, with therapy. Um, Another kid I want to talk about is uh, internal sphincter dysynergy, which is another under-appreciated under source of bladder dysfunction in children with cerebral palsy. Uh, this was a study that we, uh, this was a presentation we had made to the, at the AAP. And um, it was predicated on, on, on our experience that, uh, or especially in adults where I would see them, I was seeing them uh, before, before children. And uh, what was, I just got a text to shut up. Oh, my, oh, my wife's making sure I'm really where I'm supposed to be. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, um, I mean, just to, to, to cut to the chase, there's, there's this belief that, that, you know, in many patients with cerebral palsy, urinary incontinence is really the, the least of their trouble, that they have a lot more important things to, to take care of, even, even though when you communicate with them, they will tell you they find wedding very bothersome. Uh, but what we found was that, uh, uh, you know, most of them have urgent continence uh, and are enuresis. They complain of frequency urgency. And we, we went about looking at what their bladder dynamics were. We had 44 children. The mean age was 11.9. Most common reason for referral was urinary, was urgent continence and uh, to a lesser degree uh, infection. What was interesting was that I didn't realize I was so technically talented. I could, I could actually start the slideshow again. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, what I thought was interesting was that almost half of them was self-referred, which means that that they, the parents got tired of being told there's nothing we could do and decided they wanted to be seen if there was something that might be possible. And what we found was that, yeah, they had detrusive overactivity. You also had sphincter dysenergy. And this is a good example of not only what we saw in those patients, but also in general when we talk about detrusive external sphincter dysenergy. We have high pressure voiding, 
related to increased sphincter activity. This is a female, so you get to see sort of what they call a spinning top urethra. All right. Then, of, then we have the true internal sphincter dysynergy, uh, where you have neurologically driven in, impairment of contraction at the level of the bladder neck. So the EMG is quiet, the contraction is strong, and yet there's no real funneling of the bladder neck. You have high enough pressure to push some of the urine through, but uh, they do not do an efficient job. Um, there's too much information. Uh, the relationship to severe spasticity is, is not really there. Uh, that um, uh, not, not to the degree that, that uh, uh, is commonly thought. Uh, in the same way that uh, what they call the uh, gross motor functioning classification system, meaning how well are they, how, how independently can they uh, ambulate and move, uh, nor the degree of spasticity correlated very well with what the urodynamic findings were. The key points were that, that, that when you have dysynergy, you have high pressure voiding that over time is damaging. And okay, you can have associated reflux. Uh, what was a little bit disturbing is that four of the patients had already undergone procedures for their had previously undergone procedures for their reflux without ever having urodynamics done. And that's sort of like on, on us, because these were not the pediatricians operating on these kids. Um, but, you know, it goes to speak to sometimes we, we make presumptions about things without really vetting out to a better degree what really is driving the bus for, for, for their problems. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's well documented in the literature that most patients who have detrusa overact that have complaints of urinary incontinence, about 85% will have documented detrusa overactivity on urodynamics, but about, uh, about 40, 45% will have associated dysynergy at the external sphincter. But if you do video urodynamics, you will find that, that the, other, the other portion have dysynergy at the level of the internal sphincter or bladder neck. Okay, um, and that the tech comment for there that underlying disorders in patients with cerebral palsy are a bit more pathologic than people appreciate. Right, <clears throat> not all treatment, not all. You know, I, I wanted to use this example of a patient with uh, cerebral palsy to say that not all patients. Uh, who have incontinence necessarily need to have their incontinence treated, but but at least um, uh, at least what's driving that. So in his case, he had severe hyper uh, hyperreflexia or, or neurogenic detrusor overactivity. Uh, it was associated with failure of the bladder neck to open. We put him on alpha blocker therapy, and you can see his pressures came down. He no longer had hydronephrosis, and he emptied completely were near completely when he voided. But he was still incontinent in diaper. The the he was very well cared for, and it would just be too problematic for the family to try him. So <clears throat> when to refer for urologic evaluation. Uh, anyone who has increased, uh, you know, who has lots, who have a history of any of the following, spinal dysraphism, a history of tethered cord surgery, 
posterior valve, previous bladder, or urethral surge, surgery. What the heck is that? I'm going to get the award for the worst uh, thing. Uh, previous urethral surgery, particularly repair of anatomic abnormalities. You know, if they, they had uh, a cloacal malformation or, or some other issue, bladder neck reconstruction, basically you make them continent by creating an obstructive model. Uh, if they've had urethral surgery, they can develop anastomotic strictures. So that needs to be considered and vetted out. And then certainly anyone has a history GU trauma. Uh, patients who have persistent LUTs. Who do not approve? Who did not approve on a reasonable period of time on standard therapy, uh, with or without medication? Any boy with low urinary tract symptoms and a history of urinary tract infection, boys should not be getting infection. Not after the first year of life. It's very uncommon, and there's almost always some sort of underlying pathology associated with that. Girls, on the other hand, may have periodic recurrent infections. They don't. We don't automatically jump on them. Uh, but if they have recurrent fevers, if they have recurrent infections on a consistent basis, not once every two years, but, but more consistently, uh, if they should be there. And certainly anyone with recurrent infections who are symptomatic in between. Uh, patients with specific LUTs that are outside the, being typical, straining to void, hesitancy, poor stream, deviated stream, uh, hematuria, or obviously, you know, intermittent uh, or continuous leakage. Uh, patients who have bladder wall thickening, upper tract dilation, or visible lower ureters pre or post void on ultrasound. Patients who have gotten a VCUG and you notice that, you know, they're five years old and this is their first infection, this is the first time they had a VCUG and now they're refluxing. Most primary reflux manifests itself in the first year or two of life. It's very uncommon to have primary reflux in the girl that doesn't present until they're five or six years old. There's usually something else that's, that's underlying it that's driving that. Uh, irregular bladder outline of vertical shape, uh, abnormal appearance of the urethra. Uh, we need to advocate a little bit. We need to measure what we say to avoid uh, feeding the patient sense that you, the problem is behavioral. You know, we talk about they don't pay attention. Uh, they, they're, uh, we have late, they, it's lazy bladder syndrome, this busy little girl syndrome. And I tell parents, you know, it's a busy little girl. When grandpa jumps up and runs to the bathroom or has an accident, it's a busy little grandpa syndrome. Why is it, you know, the nature of overactivity is you go from zero to 60 in two seconds. And, and that's why they jump up, not because they weren't paying attention, because, well, it always happens when they're playing, but they're kids, they're always playing. Every kid is always playing. Uh, bladder dysfunction uh, is influenced positively or negatively by certain behaviors, but it is the bladder that is dysfunctional, not your child. And I uh, hope I've influenced your perspective. Thank you very much. And I'm sure I ruined uh, all our time for questions. But... Um, I just wanted to get your perspective. Uh, Steve Hodges has uh, uh, recently made a, a, a lot of hay about the uh, poop is king type of uh, 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 philosophy. And I've increasingly had parents that have read his book about constipation and doing daily enemas for 30 days and the starling forces and whatnot. Um, I was wondering if you can comment on that. You 
No, it's, it's based upon my experience that that there's, as, as I was alluding to in, 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 in the talk, that there certainly is a frequent association. Patients with bowel, with bladder dysfunction will have some form of bowel dysfunction. It's important to distinguish, though. A lot of times things are recorded and it's the history of it as opposed to having active bowel dysfunction at the time. And if you have bowel dysfunction and you treat that and your urinary symptoms go away, then that sort of feeds the answer that, yeah, there was a connection. But there's a lot of patients who go on these bowel, these protracted bowel programs, uh, and it has absolutely no effect on their urinary incontinence whatsoever. And they just find it increasingly frustrating that, uh, that, that the urinary incontinence is not even addressed. It's like you, you get in, you get handed the script, uh, you need to have, you know, a bowel program. And, and so uh, nothing is done. And sometimes you can, you can do both. There's no reason why you cannot do uh, bowel, both bowel, you know, concomitant bowel and bladder, bladder planning. You don't have to wait for one to, to finish. Uh, my experience is that those patients who have severe uh, impaction and so forth oftentimes get much, much better as soon as you address their bowel issues. But if you've addressed their, their constipation issues, but if you, if you don't treat them uh, or if you treat them and they're not getting better, then you need to look for some other necessary source. So there is a connection. I want to get into that whole what, what that is or why, but I just that, the, that uh, we need to be mindful that, that they, they, one is not always proof of the other or that they're, that they're you know, always linked. They can just be concomitant and that treat both. I have a question. You mentioned the um, association between bladder and bowel dysfunction and trauma or sexual abuse. Um, we certainly in urology worry that we are under-recognizing, under-diagnosing that. Yeah. Um, what are some of your red flags when you see these kids? Because, um, you know, the, the family seems so fixated on the bladder and the bowel issues that sometimes mm. trying to find the other associations are a little difficult. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, it's, a, it's a very good point. It certainly is a very real concern. Uh, I don't know how... I, I could tell you that the evidence of sexual abuse is, is relatively small in, in my experience and in, in the practice that I have and who I'm seeing. Um, but certainly red flags are any, any type of, of uh, abnormality of the skin in the area you know, of the vagina in girls. You know, is the hymen intact? Do they have any irritants there? Uh, any, any erosion? Is the anal sphincter? Is there anything abnormal about that? Uh, how they behave when you when you are, are, are with them, and then of course sometimes it's very telling about the parents how they are. Are they just disconnected and they just, or or sometimes they tend to be overprotective. I mean, it, it was suspicious in one one parent where the, the the father was was insistent on being there for every aspect of their of of the the encounter, particularly anything that had to do with examination. They want it to be, yeah, and most, most docs, you know, if you have the nurse there, they're very happy to wait behind the curtain until, uh, until uh, you know, you've, you've finished catheterizing them or putting their EMG patches on. And something, you just get a sixth sense that something's not right. So, yeah, I mean, those are the things that you go by your sense, you go by how they respond. Does the child look fearful? 
Uh, is there evidence of any some type of physical uh, inappropriateness? Do they have bruising? I mean, you know, not every not every abusive thing is is necessarily sexual. They can just be physically abused. They can be hurt. You know, so one of the things we go out of the way for. I mean, you look in the papers; like every month, there's, there's somebody in New York City who killed their child because they peed on the floor or something. When I'm told them not to do that, and it's just heartbreaking to see that. All right. Thank you very much. Yeah, I got that. Oh, you got it. Yeah. I got it.